those that find their passion, stick to it and work hard and, and, and you know, are realistic about a work ethic that is going to earn a paycheck to pay the bills. That grittiness is the key to a work life that is emotionally rewarding. Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by Associate Dean Phil Powell. Here on the show, as you know, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. And we want to do this in a number of ways. We want to make sure you get the best resources available in real time, as well as get you access to some of our faculty or give you an avenue to get someone you know as a guest on our show. So if any of these interest you, send us an email to ROIPod. That's R-O-I-P-O-D at I-U-P-U-I dot E-D-U. There you can pitch us a guest. You can ask us a question you're wrestling with, or you can send a question to one of our faculty and we'll be, we will work hard to get back with you in a short time. So on this episode, we thought it'd be fun to do something a little bit different. As you know, this podcast has been on the air since 2017, and I don't think there's been an episode where we were able to kind of go behind the microphone a little bit and get to know one of our hosts, Phil Powell. So Phil, I just thought it'd be so fun to learn about you, your story, uh, your leadership style, and kind of your journey and what you've learned up to this point, especially being one who's been in so many of these episodes and, and getting to hear so many more leadership principles to see what's out there. So let's let's go back to the beginning of, of your journey, how you got here into economics, into higher ed of all places. And I want to start with, you know, that, that beginning moment where things started to click for you, that economics was the focus. Sure. You know, I knew in high school that I wanted to do something to change the world, right? I think a lot of when you're 17 or 18, you want to have an impact. And, you know, like a lot of people, I was gravitated toward this, this concept of, of public service. And how do you do something bigger than yourself in uplifting communities, uplifting those around you, especially addressing the issue of poverty? So I went to the University of South Carolina I wanted, I had a real attraction to the developing world, the emerging markets that were out there. And this was the 1990, early 1990s. And I majored in international relations. I figured, well, that's learn how people resolve problems and this type of thing. And then I said, I'll do an economics minor to explain how the world works. Because to me, economics was the mechanics of how, the sort of the physics of humanity. Well, I quickly realized that, um, that really it was economics that would solve the problems and the political science part just sort of described the problems. And I wanted to solve problems. I didn't want to just describe them. Um, and it w- the epiphany came when I was an exchange student in the Fiji Islands at the University of the South Pacific. <laughs> what a cool place to do an exchange experience. And it was there that I met uh, a Scottish economist who had worked abroad and he had solutions, and these were these were solutions that were small scale, that had been implemented through aid money, in, in especially in Africa, and they lifted people out of poverty. And that's what it really attracted me to economics. I returned to the University of South Carolina, go Gamecocks, uh, changed my major, and decided, hey, am I going to go Peace Corps, or am I going to stay in economics and do graduate work? Well, I ended up choosing the latter, went to Vanderbilt, focused on economic development. 
and then um, went back to the Pacific Islands, wrote my dissertation on economic development and actually environmental policy in the area. And I was hired here to come to the Kelly School to sort of take that scholarship and take that thinking and see what I can do in business education. So what was it that made economics feel more real than politics? So I come back to this phrase, the physics of humanity. What economics does is it logically explains patterns of human behavior based on biological motivation. When you go to the natural world, there's an explanation for why animals behave, right? And a lot of it is to further, further their, to survive and to further their, their species through reproduction. Well, as humans, we do that, but we also want to serve our interest in terms of leading happier lives. And so when you look at when humans come together, they always trade. We were trading thousands of generations before the word capitalism, right? And why do we trade? Why do we make the choice to buy something? We make the choice to buy something because the price we pay is less than the value that we attach to it. And so markets are inherently, when they're allowed to operate, win-win arrangements. Now, and in many ways, it's sociobiological. You see trading, you see hunting and eating, and you see procreation wherever you see humans, right? And so what economics does is it brings a non-ideological explanation to how humans interact to try to find win-win solutions in their daily lives. And that's what markets are all about. Now, you might say, well, Phil, I thought economics was about free markets and low taxes and, um, you know, unfettered freedom and in, in, in market behavior. But what you got to understand is that as a sociobiological phenomenon, just like eating or just like procreation, they are in, in, the, in of themselves just natural phenomena. And then we, put a, we have to put an ethical lens on whether outcomes from those nat, that natural behavior is good or bad. And that's where the ethical debate over policy becomes. And I think that's where people get confused, is that economics is really just an, an attempt to explain what we see, and it comes down to humans responding to incentives, incentives that if they act upon them, they perceive that it'll make them happier and live a happier life, versus what's the right way to tax something or what is what, what is a human right versus just you know a, a, an economic purchase and, um, and that's where I think the public policy gets confused with the, pu- the purity of economics so I chose economics because I wanted I didn't want to be burdened by ideological uh, imprisonment in the way I've thought about the world. In essence, I mean, it's it's scientific. You know, you've kind of put yourself into, like you described, a character just observing, seeing what the world does and making predictions and how, okay, what experiment can we run to figure out how to check all those boxes? Absolutely. And what, what drove me to this in college was my economics professors would talk across the range of ideology from left to right. And at the end of the day, a policy, if you're being intellectually honest, any policy is just a debate over trade-offs of benefits and costs. And when we look at it that way and we retain intellectual honesty, then there's always a path forward to a better solution. But typically that path is complicated. It, it blurs the line between left and right in terms of, of political thinking. 
And at, at the end of the day, it's about implementation and about understanding our, bi- our socio-biological response to incentives. So how then did you decide that being involved in the higher education aspect of this was what made sense for you? How did, how did that fit into your goal of being able to change the world like you wanted to back in high school? Well, let's go back to how I define markets. If, if, and this is an optimistic, very optimistic definition, but I'm a proud, stubborn optimist uh, if you get to work with me. And I'm unapologetic about that. Um, But go back to my definition of markets. Markets are people trading with each other to live better lives, to be happier, right? And and again, that you can say that's rose-colored glasses because there's a lot of folks in poverty that trade and they don't are not able to elevate themselves because of institutions and society. I'm with you, right? But when individuals are given the freedom to act upon their talent, to work in an area that they have a that they're good at in terms of performance, but also have a passion for, then they align their work with what makes what makes it gives them a sense of reward in life, and that's what drives success. And if you think about education, education is two layers: it's helping students come through Indiana University and figure out what they want to do. And then equipping them to succeed on that path. And so our job in higher education is not only to equip folks with the right knowledge and skills, but to also help them see a direction to go where they can earn a live, they can have a job that's financially rewarding, but more importantly, emotionally rewarding. And I can't think of any other vocation where you can help put people in a position to walk into a better version of themselves. And do it not only by sitting in a classroom and learning knowledge, but also giving them opportunities, action-based learning opportunities where they can make mistakes. We want students to make mistakes. We want students to take risks and to fail within controlled experiences so that when they get out in the world and they're working and they're trading their talent for a, a salary and, and, and contribution to a, for a, bit, to a business, that they have found their calling. And that leads to... That just that's just good for humanity, and I and I can definitely vouch because if anyone's had the you know privilege of being able to see you speak, being able to talk, when you are you are in your element when it comes to being in higher education and leading the next generation because you do have passion behind it. You know, I know you have fulfilling in work because you come in the office, uh, you know, a lot of times with with a big smile on your face. It's, with all the battles you face, you know, so what, where have you been able to hone in on your own personal um, passion and enthusiasm that helps you motivate yourself, especially, you know, higher education is, is not an easy industry to work in because you have so many winds blowing in so many different directions uh, that, that could be political, bureaucratic, could be, you know, changing generations, could be demand, supply and demand of, of students. And, and as even we see students, decreasing their demand for for a college education you know so how do you keep yourself optimistic and op and, and enthused within your passion you know I, I love to teach um, at the heart at the end of the day I, I'm, a, I'm an edu- I'm a higher edu- I'm, a, I'm a professor right I love to publish research and economics even more I love to teach being in the dean's office gives me the privilege of helping to take the Kelly School in a new strategic direction under the leadership of our great dean, Idy Kessner, 
who was just, your listeners may know, voted by Poets and Quants, 20, the, the Dean of the Year recently. So it is just a privilege to work for ID. But being in the Dean's office, as you mentioned, higher education is going through some turbulent times. We have, as we've talked about in some of the other episodes, we're going to have, in Indiana, we're going to have a 9% reduction in um, high school graduates over the decade. Um, in some ways, higher education has gotten very expensive over a generation. Average tuition in higher education has gone up two or three times the rate of inflation. Now, Indiana University has done a good job, of key, and other Indiana institutions, of keeping our, our price increases lower than the average. But still, there's this perception in society that college is very expensive. It's less accessible than it was a generation ago. There's fewer high school students. And, uh, you know, the online environment may, means we have more competition. And I think that's actually good for, for, for students. They're going to have more choices. That's good for the customer in any, in any market. So the Kelly School, like any world-class business school, asks itself, how do we respond to these new challenges? And when I came to the dean's office in 2016, uh, our dean, or ID, ID said, let's, let's elevate our presence on the IUPUI campus here in Indianapolis to dr- help to be a bolder presence in the region and help drive the economic renaissance, this takeoff that we're seeing in this great city. And sitting down at my desk and working with everybody to try to figure that out is, is a phenomenal phenomenally plugs into my passion. And what I'm able to do is, is not only, you know, when I'm in the classroom, my goal is to help students walk into a better vision of themselves. Well, when you're in the dean's office, you can aggregate that to the community level, right? We're IUPUI is an anchor institution. Um, We're just west of downtown. With the right leadership and the right vision and the right energy, we are, we can be a part, or we have to be a part, of taking Indianapolis to the next level. And when you look at what challenges this economy, it's two things. It's talent that can fill the skilled jobs. Because even though there's going to be a 9% fall in high school graduates, there's going to be an 8% increase in the demand for bachelor degree workers. We're still in a growth market. But we have to figure out how to increase the percentage of high school students that are getting a college degree. And if you get a business degree, you're qualified for 30 to 40% of those new high-paying jobs that are coming around the corner. So that's one. Talent holds us back in Indianapolis. Also, economic mobility is not what it should be. Education is the ultimate vehicle to make economic mobility a competitive asset for Indianapolis. And the only way to move from a lower-income decile to a higher-income decile is through education. And we have the privilege and honor of being able to deliver that for folks. But we have to do it in a new way that changes the national conversation on how to deliver management education. So, again, you can see I'm passionate. I'm talking, I'm, 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 I can, I can uh, ramble on this. But at the end of the day, to answer your question, Matt, where I plug in right now is taking what you can do in the classroom and now being part of our, our dean's office and driving that at the community level and aggregating it. And I can multiply that kind of impact. In essence, you're changing the world the way you wanted to, you know, one one student at a time. It sounds like, you know, seeing that opportunity to be able to directly plug in and impact 
one person that can ripple into, you know, their family that can ripple into, you know, their next generation and on and on and on until you're uplifting a exactly. whole, whole environment of people. And the hardest part of that is your traditional executive leadership challenge. I can't do it, right? Whenever I use first person, I'm actually diluting the impact of the institution. So when you're in the dean's office, you really have to practice what you teach. And that is, is how do you communicate, motivate, create incentives, signal, hold accountable, all those things that we talk about on, the, on these leadership episodes of this podcast to get the organization moving in that direction. And whenever, when every member of your, if we've learned one thing from the ROI podcast, the successful organizations are the ones where every member of the team, from newest, higher, at the lowest rank, to the most veteran, highest value uh, team member from a business perspective, that up and down, every day they walk in feeling strong. And they know exactly what they need to do to serve the mission. They know they can handle any challenges, and they feel valued and recognized. So one big question, I think a lot of young leaders, especially those in their fresh out of college trying to find their lane of where they need to be is uh, maybe I'm stuck, you know, and I think especially with this younger, newer generation being part of it as well is there's this expectancy to reach my calling, reach that position far sooner than what many of us, many before us have reached. You know, I want to be CEO five days after I graduate college with, and forgetting sometimes that there's like a refining process along the way, you know, into finding your lane. And so one question I have for you is uh, outside of the passion of being able to shape the next generation and get people in economically challenged areas uplifted into, you know, their full potential to change the world. How, why did you stick with, or how did you make your lane, I should say, here in higher education instead of chasing after it and, and through the private sector or when one place didn't work out, you, you know, just abandoning it to go find something else? You know, in the current workplace, there is a crisis of passion. Those that find their passion stick to it, even under the most adverse circumstances, and work hard and, and, and you know, are realistic about a work ethic that is going to earn a paycheck to pay the bills. That grittiness is the key to a work life that is emotionally rewarding. You know, getting a job that is financially rewarding is actually easier than a job that is emotionally rewarding. And I think the challenge, Matt, is that in the current environment where we have faster cycles of competition in markets, where people, especially in technology, jump from organization to organization because that's just the norm. You know, in, in Silicon Valley, the average professional changes organizations every 12 months, right? This fear, FOMO, right? Fear of missing out, right? Checking our cell phone every five minutes. I mean, our brain, our, this sort of constant distraction and constant sense of, of change and that we're missing something out runs against how our brain is programmed. And so people, individuals have to make the choice to stay on a path that plugs into their passion. 
and not to pursue the dollar, but to pursue something that is larger than yourself. Because ultimately, that's what the, the literature says, that's what's going to make you happier. In order to find something that is emotionally rewarding, you have to plug into yourself. You have to practice mindfulness. You have to understand that the chaos around you, the craziness that you see from colleagues or team members or family members or friends, the frantic pace of life around us, just going along with with that uh, spirit is not the track to happiness. How often do we encounter someone in our life, professionally or personally, that just lights us up? There's something about them that's centered. There's something about them that makes them a rock in the storm. That's what we, that's what we have to, that's what individuals need to choose to be. But it means running upstream of everything else that you see around us, the temptations of being myopic or, or making decisions about the immediate return. Once you center yourself, you're mindful, and you really ask yourself, what, what gets my fires burning inside about what I really enjoy to do? And you focus on that, and you align your education with that, even if it's just a, uh, an online course on LinkedIn learning or a graduate degree from the Kelly School of Business, like nice MBA, which we can, we can, ha- we can deliver for you, uh, that is, is, uh, that's the path. And that's what we can enable in higher education. But I think that discipline is what, what the newer generation of, of, of graduates need to think about if they feel stuck or lost in their job. The U.S. is full of opportunity. It may not feel like it, but if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're disciplined and you, and you wall off all the noise that's out there and you focus on what really, may, what really lights your passion, I promise you that following that journey is going to take you farther than you can ever expect. What would be your advice to that individual, you know, because a lot of times when that, when those noises and those distractions come in, it, it almost feels, it's just turbulent. Like you, you don't have an orientation of where I'm at right now in life, uh, emotionally or physically, like you're trying to make sense of it all. You know, what, what would be your recommendation to that individual, you know, running the hunker down so they can drill down into that self you know, what is that first step that, that kind of starts leading to, okay, I can, I can finally get my bearing and see the horizon even a little bit. You've got to center yourself by plugging into something in your life that gives you a sense of what we call psychological safety. Because in that zone, whatever that zone is, you can calm down, your stress hormones are lower, and you can think more clearly. And what does that mean more specifically? It might mean time with your spouse or your partner. It might mean reengaging your faith community. It might be going to the gym on a normal basis. But what there's something in everyone's life that's a that's a place of peace. And you have to go there to start to order your thoughts and to wall off the the uh, noise of life and the distractions and the myopia that plagues what we see. And, you know, you might say, well, Phil, you're kind of idealistic here and you're kind of getting spiritual. Yeah, I am. But it's also biological. Um, 
And psychological safety is something that our, our ancestors, as they evolved, worked to create among their kinship groups because that's what led to our survival. And plugging back at, into that primordial sense of, of being that's something larger than ourselves is the place to start. And again, yes, it's spiritual, and it, it's not sort of in the rational part of the brain, but we're plugging back into the limbic part of the brain, which is where our emotions lie. And we have to settle that. And there's that, what that is for, for people is different, but that's where we have to go because, we, because what we see around us, our brain is not evolved or equipped to make sense of it. Now, as we wrap up, Phil, this is just kind of a fun one. You know, we've done this podcast since 2017, and you've been a part of that journey since the beginning. Um, I would love to know, and I think our listeners would also love to know, what's been uh, some of your biggest takeaways or best memories that you've had uh, being a part of the podcast since its inception? You know, it's the lessons I've taken away, Matt. There's a, there's a consistency here. Um, first and foremost, what I've learned from the ROI podcast is that if you're going to lead an organization— or if you're going to lead a team, or if you're going to lead yourself, you have to be very clear about what you want to achieve. And you need to be able to communicate it in very succinct and simple to understand terms. And then you need to be able to measure against it. Also, I've noticed that the leaders that we've interviewed have a really strong sense of values. I'll never forget Fred Glass. I guess the most famous line from these interviews that I've remembered um, came from Fred Glass, our, our Indiana University athletic director. We did that interview in Bloomington, and, you know, he's retiring. He's announced, recently announced his retirement. We're going to miss him. But he says, you are what you tolerate. And he was very much a values-based leader. And so I've, I've used that quote a number of times. I always tell, tell folks where I got it, but people remember that. You're not, you're not what you achieve. You are what you tolerate, and that's what people remember you for. And I think that the great history of of leaders that we've been able to interview that's exactly what they embrace whether implicitly or explicitly and also these great leaders leave their ego at the door uh, I think the podcast has reminded me or it strengthened my view that ego is really the most toxic force in business not confidence but ego and and it makes me remember how as humans, we've evolved to be something larger than our, to do something larger than ourselves, and to build an organization that embraces that mission is what inspires people to do better things and you create a better workplace. Phil Powell, such an honor and pleasure to be able to do this show with you. So exciting, and I'm so uh, excited for the other leaders we get to bring in. Uh, this has been another episode of the ROI Podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, alongside Associate Dean Phil Powell. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.